thing that's coming up, um, bring it to your attention that next Sunday evening we're going to do something a bit different with our evening service. Um, we're going to meet together and we're going to think about the subject of transgender, transgenderism, uh, what the Bible has to say about it, what we as Christians should think about it, how we might respond to the world around us. Um, we're going to put our heads together, get our heads into the Bible and think about it. It's a big subject, a difficult subject. Um, so six o'clock next Sunday evening, it'd be the first part of two. We'll do the second one in July. I can't remember the date, but the first one uh, is next Sunday evening, six o'clock back here. But now we're coming to God's word, and so let's ask for his help, shall we? Oh Lord in heaven, you are strong and faithful. Lord Jesus in heaven, you are, you are strong and kind. And so we pray, God Almighty, Triune God, Father, Son and Spirit, that as we, uh, as we think together about these words you've given to us, that you would use them in your faithfulness to do good to us. Because that is your nature and that is our need. And so we look to you to help us. Amen. Uh, have you ever watched um, a, a child helping one of their parents? It's a lovely thing, isn't it? And children often like to help their parents. And they find such delight in being useful. They're not always that useful, but they enjoy being useful, don't they? They're little children. Um, and I don't think that goes away as we get older. We like to feel useful. That can be tricky, though, when it comes to relating to the living God. I was listening to a pastor um, a week or so ago, and he was uh, recalling a hard time in his life. He said this. He said, I was feeling nothing but condemnation, accusation, uselessness, failure. Everywhere I looked, all I could see in myself was just failure. We can all go through seasons like that, can't we? Uh, sometimes they can be long seasons, and we just feel wretched. And in those seasons, one of the questions that begins to nag at us is this question. It's, it's the question, it's not that God couldn't use us, but that God wouldn't want to. God would not want to use me. That can nag at us. When we look at the mess that we've made, we think, oh, God must be so frustrated with us. So done with us. It, we, we think we, we haven't learned anything. We're so stuck where we were. We've been stuck there for years, maybe even decades. We've been stuck. We've got the same struggles. We've got the same weaknesses. We don't see any growth. We don't see any change. And God, God must just be, just, just be shrugging his shoulders in despair. So disappointed to have us on his team. It's like that, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever been chosen to play on a team. And when it comes to playing, you just make a complete mess of it. And you drop everything. You, 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 you spoil it all. And everyone on the team starts to get at you. Uh, they, they, they've had it with you because you're useless. And we think about it towards God. Why would God want me on his team? If you've never felt like that before, you probably will one day. Um, and if you don't, you can be pretty sure that there are people around you who feel that a lot. And there are people who stand at the front and speak to you who feel that a lot. And Genesis 20 is what we need to hear this morning. Genesis 20. How do we get to Genesis 20? It tells us about Abraham. We have been tracking the life of Abraham since Genesis 12. That's covered 25 years of Abraham's life. It hasn't quite taken us 25 years to get here. Um, but when we first met Abraham in Genesis 12, God did something wonderful. You see, at that point in history, 
that the, the, the great world of blessing that God had made had been ruined by sin and everything was under a curse. One of the great messages in Genesis is that God is bigger than our failures. That God is determined to bless the world. He is determined to bless the world with original, undefiled, and gloriously great blessings. So Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. God says to Abraham, Abraham, I am going to bless you. It was just completely out of the blue. Abraham doesn't go on a great pilgrimage. He doesn't do a great work. God just says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. It's grace. It's beautiful grace bursting into a hopeless world. I will bless you. In fact, these are the words that God said in Genesis 12. He said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This great promise in Genesis 12 becomes the, whole, the backbone through the whole of history. It's a promise which leads right up to the coming of Jesus Christ, through whom are indescribably magnificent blessings unleashed on all the nations of the world. This is a great big deal. Through Abraham's family line will come the saviour of the world. But Abraham doesn't have a family line. He had a promise and he had to trust it. Even when the promise looked impossible, he had to trust it. And that's what Abraham does. That's why Abraham in the New Testament is held up to us as the model of faith. He is the man of faith. He trusts that God can and will do what he has promised, even if that means creating from nothing. Even if it means filling up emptiness. Even if it means putting life into the place of death. God will do it. In Genesis 18, God puts a time frame on the birth of Abraham's promised son. It will happen within the year. In Genesis 20, this great man of faith arrives in Gerar. Now, you've got to remember, this man Abraham has this promise. And this promise came to him unasked for, unsought, unmerited, undeserved. It is a promise of grace, pure grace. Now Genesis 20 puts that grace through its paces. Genesis 20 takes that grace and says, how far can you push it until it breaks? How strong is this grace? Will it hold up under pressure or will it crumble? What happens in Gerar? Well, let's look at two things that are grace-related. The first one is that God doesn't lose sight of the promise, even when we do. Abraham turns up, turns her up, he arrives up into this new place, and he says to everyone straight away, this lady here, Sarah, she's my sister. She's my sister. The king is called Abimelech. It means my father is Milku, or Molech, a Canaanite deity, he is a full-blown pagan king. So Abraham rocks up with his sister. And so the king of Gerar, Abimelech, says, I'll have her as one of my wives. And he takes her as his wife. Why would he do that? Uh, you may remember, you may not, but something very similar happened in Genesis 12. There was a famine in the land. So Abraham and Sarah went down to Egypt. And Abraham uh, told the same deception. She is my sister. And the reason he gave then, he said to Sarah, um, say that you're my sister because I know what a beautiful woman you are. He said, when we get to Egypt, everyone will want to marry you, Sarah, because you're gorgeous. 25 years later, he doesn't say the same. Let the reader understand. Um, 
What is probably happening is that Abraham, Abraham is loaded. You've got to get that into our heads. He is super rich. He has this huge household with him of, of servants and animals. His whole kind of, the whole group may well be as big as the town of Gerar itself. They are huge. So Abraham moves into this area and the king, the local king, wants to form an alliance. He wants to, to maybe secure trading relations. He wants there to be peace. Uh, and one of the ways of doing that would be to, to marry and so Abimelech marries Sarah. Job, job done. They've, they've created this link. It's the way of the world. Look at verse 3. Look how it begins, those first two words. But God. See, we've just got two verses. The first two verses of the chapter, and the whole of salvation history gets thrown off course. A God had made the promise, depend on the birth of Isaac, the birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah, and on the brink of it happening, Sarah is taken to be the wife of someone else. If it's down to Abraham, the promise would be dead in the water. But it's not down to Abraham. But God, God intervenes. God speaks to Abimelech in a dream and he says, you are as good as dead. You're as good as dead. Now, the, the previous chapter, chapter 19, we we saw the people of Sodom being told that their actions are immoral. Uh, and when they were told that, they are indignant. They say, how dare you judge us? How dare you say what we have done is wrong? It's the kind of thing we hear so often today, isn't it? When there's the slightest suggestion that someone's actions aren't right, they cry, don't judge me. You have no right to say that I'm wrong. It's a cry that's so familiar because it's often the way our own hearts respond, isn't it? We hate it when our wrong is pointed out. But Abimelech, he's made of different stuff. Abimelech is a very impressive pagan. Now look at how he responds to what God says. Abimelech appeals for justice. He cares about what is right. He doesn't say, don't judge me. He says, judge me justly. In fact, he sounds quite a lot like Abraham when he prayed for Sodom in Genesis 18. Abimelech says, will you destroy an innocent nation? And literally, he says, even if the nation is righteous, will you destroy? Just like when Abraham pleaded for Sodom. When Abraham said, surely the judge of all the world will do what is right. Abimelech says, let's look for justice here. He says, I was deceived. I did this with a clear conscience and with clean hands. And God agrees with him. That is how he's done it. In fact, Abimelech has such a such a deep conviction about the wrongness of adultery, he calls it such great guilt. He never doubts that those who do such things deserve to die. You noticed when Daniel read in verse 6 what God says about adultery. It's quite striking. God says, this is a sin against me. You see that? Sin against me. His sexual sin is not a secret sin. What we do with our private parts is not private. God knows about it. And God knows that when we, when we deviate from what he designed for sex, God designed that sex was for one man and one woman in a permanent married relationship. And when we take it out of that, we are desecrating the image of God in another person. It's an offense ultimately against God. Now, what we do with our bodies is not just what we do with our bodies. There's a spiritual dimension. It matters to God. And you notice Abimelech's shock that this would be suggested of him. And, and also his humility. He doesn't want to sweep this away. 
doesn't want to deal with it behind closed doors. He could have done that, couldn't he? He could have just dealt with it all behind closed doors, but he doesn't. He wakes up early, gets all his officials together, brings Abraham in and asks Abraham to explain himself. And, and as Abimelech asks Abraham, there's this a, a, a kind of stunning openness to Abraham's questions. How have I wronged you, he says. What, what was your reason? He wants to understand, is there, is there any fault on his part? Is there anything he needs to sort out? And, and the concern of Abimelech isn't just for himself, verse 9. His question is, what have you done to us? Worried about how the whole of his people, all the people under his care might be affected by it. And then if you move on to verse 14, do you see what he does? He doesn't just return Sarah. He, he, he does three more things here. And each one of them is striking. The first one, he gives gifts to Abraham. He honours the man who has wronged him. We call that grace, don't we? Then in verse 15, he offers Abraham the best of his land. Back in Genesis 12, remember that the, the similar thing that happened. Abraham goes to Egypt. He lies to Pharaoh about Sarah. Sarah and Pharaoh get married and it, it all unfolds. And when, it all, when it all comes out in Egypt, Pharaoh says, get out. Get away from me. I don't want your kind in my land. Abimelech, though, is made of meeker stuff. He has great generosity. He says, Abraham, take the best of the land. And then in verse 16, in verse 16, he goes to these extraordinary lengths to protect Sarah's reputation. He offers this gift to Abraham of a thousand shekels. That is a monstrous amount of money. And he gives it to Abraham as a way of ensuring that Sarah is completely vindicated. And at this point, we have to feel the bite of the passage. That the bite, uh, Abimelech goes out of his way at great personal cost to, to ensure that Sarah is vindicated. Abimelech is so much more concerned to protect Sarah than Abraham is. In fact, isn't it the case that everything we see of Abimelech highlights what Abraham is lacking? Abimelech is concerned for justice, but Abraham is happy to deceive. Abimelech seeks to protect others, but Abraham's concern is only for himself. In, in, in verse 11, as he tries to explain himself and he puts out this slippery set of excuses, he says, I, I did all this, I lied because I feared for my life. It's self-protection to the harm of others. Now, what does Abraham say? He tries to explain himself. She really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. It's the first time we've heard of this. I guess we have to accept that it's true. Um, but he, he, doesn't, he misses out the fact that he failed when he arrived in Gerard to say the most important thing about Sarah. Not that she's my sister, but she's my wife. Why didn't he say that from the start? Then in verse 13, he says, when God caused me to wander from my father's household. God caused him to wander? Is that what happened? Is that, is that really what happened, Abraham? No, God called him and God blessed him and God led him. In fact, what Abraham actually says here, he says, when the gods caused me to wander. One commentator says, this is, this is the, the, langu the language this is the language and wry attitude of the pagan. The idea that we are all pawns in some, some distant, unknowable deity's hands. 
The commentator says, it's one man of the world speaking to another. And the booming irony comes in verse 11. I don't know if you noticed in verse 11. Abraham's trying to wriggle his way out. He's trying to explain why he did, explain his thought process. I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place. But there was, wasn't there? Explicitly, when Abimelech told his officials about his dream in verse 8, they were very much afraid. This is a place where there was very much a fear of God. And Abraham massively miscalculated. But even if he was right, did he need to worry? For 25 years, the Lord has blessed him. For 25 years, wherever he's gone, he's been met with blessing. In Genesis 14, Abraham led his personal army, because that's how big his household is. He led his personal army to defeat five kings in battle. In Genesis 17 and 18, we see Abraham on the most intimate terms and with God Almighty. You know, we, we sing the hymn, don't we? Amazing Grace, which has the line, it's grace that brought me safe this far and grace will lead me home. But Abraham doesn't sing that song in Genesis 20. Abraham is singing, it might be grace that brought me safe this far, but it's run out somehow and I'm on my own. And maybe the real irony in verse 11, but when Abraham says there's no fear of God in Gerar, the real place where there is no fear of God in Genesis 20 is in Abraham's own heart. And I wonder if we can do that. We get so focused on the, the problems out there, the external problems, or, or maybe even just potential problems, uh, and we miss what's going on in here. We, we get so worried about external dangers, uh, whatever they might be, health risks or, or financial insecurity or just managing life or relationship pressures. And, and they could be real or they could be imagined, but we don't step back and say, but what about my heart in all of this? So easy to speak about the faithlessness of others. But what about me? In Genesis 20, for Abraham, it is a, a crisis of faith. He has lost sight of the promise. God promised to bless him. Time and time again, God has shown that he is for him. God had not only promised to bless Abraham, but he'd said Abraham will be a blessing to others. And, and most of all, God had made this great promise through Abraham's descendants, the new creation, redemptive, glorious blessings would come to the whole world. And so God had promised Abraham will have a son, Sarah will be the mother, and it will happen within the year. Why did Abraham feel he needed to lie about Sarah in Gerar? His fearful self-protection meant he was prepared for her to become another man's wife and for the promise to be lost. Why would he do it? It's not new for him. You hear that in verse 13 as Abraham's explaining? When God caused me to wander from my father's household, all the way back then I said to Sarah... This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Something really deep in Abraham's kind of mindset that's revealed here. In Genesis 12, when he lied about Sarah in Egypt, he was young in his faith. But by the time we get to Genesis 20, why is he still haunted by the same thing? We don't know how many times he did it. He said it was his practice everywhere. We only see it these two occasions. 
But he is afraid for his life. And he's haunted by a history of this fear. This fear that nobody has his back. This this fear that he has to protect himself at all costs because nobody else will do that. And he's struggled with this fear for years. And, And it seems that as this fear manifests itself again, that Abraham instinctively mistrusts the goodness and love of God for him. And when those fears take hold and when they begin to squeeze, he cannot see the faithfulness of God. When those fears are pressuring upon him, in that moment he does not believe God is for him. He thinks he's on his own. Abraham is following in the footsteps of Father Adam. Back in the Garden of Eden where God lavished blessing on Adam. He insisted that Adam enjoyed the fullness of his bounty. God walked with Adam in the garden and then the lie of the snake caught hold of Adam's heart. The lie that said, what if God is not really for me? What if God is holding back from me? What if God has told me not to eat the fruit of that tree because God is trying to ruin my happiness? The the lie that said, maybe I am really on my own. Maybe I've got to just go and work it out for myself. And so Adam disobeyed in self-protecting fear. He threw his own wife under the bus. She made me do it. Abraham has long battled with this fear for his life, losing sight of God's goodness. The promise, the promise is that Abraham and Sarah will have a son. How can Abraham fear for his life when he has that promise? How could he throw Sarah away when he has that promise? Why isn't he looking at the promise? Why doesn't he say, I'm immortal until this is done? Nobody can touch Abraham. Nobody can touch Sarah until the promise is fulfilled. But Abraham's not looking at the promise. He's lost sight. So what? So what? Well, Abraham's fickle faith, his failing, does not define him. God is still bigger than our failures. Verse 3, two words. But God. You see, if the promise depended on Abraham's strength... Well, we would all be lost forever. But God ensures that Abimelech doesn't touch Sarah. And it's astonishing, really, that he doesn't. Now, why would Abimelech not have marital relations with Sarah? In verse 6, God said, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. This is what God has done. God has personally intervened to ensure that Abimelech does not touch Sarah. Why does God do that? Because he made a promise. He promised that Sarah would have Abraham's son and God never fails on his promises. God will never go back on his word. God will never lose sight of his intention to bless all the world through the line of Abraham. And so God acts. He acts to restrain this pagan king from touching Sarah. As Abraham tries to be a curse to the nations, God will not allow it because that is not the promise. So God acts. And again and again, God acts. In all of history, God acts because he never loses sight of the promise. And so as time comes, in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ is born into the world. And born into the line of Abraham. And born to save his people from their sins. He's born to to restore that original paradise. Because God never loses sight of his promise. God never fails. And so Jesus came and did everything needed to fulfill every part of every promise. And he did it by going to the cross. 
And when he cried out on the cross, it is finished. He's saying God is faithful to every promise. God does everything needed. And he did it through his resurrection as heaven sounds its amen to that cry of completion. And he does it right now. Christ who is now ascended into glory and is at the right hand of God. He now is applying all the blessings of salvation to everyone who calls on his name. And he's poured out his spirit and he's making all things new. And one day he will return and he will renew everything and there will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth and sorrow and sighing will flee away and death will be dead and sin will be passed and all will be glory. And we will be with him with eternal pleasures at his right hand forever and ever and ever because God will never, never fail on his promises. But God, says verse 3, but God. Romans 5 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access into this grace in which we now stand. Right now, everyone who has called on the Lord to save them, we stand in grace. Do we get that? Christ has brought you over the threshold into a new way of living. Christ has opened up the door. Christ is the door and he's put you in himself. And we stand. Every part of our existence happens in this new place. When you sleep and when you rise. When you eat and when you work. And when you mess about and when you daydream. And when you are faithful and when you are faithless. The whole of your living is now standing in this place. And the place is called grace. That's the rock under our feet. And we are right to ask, will this rock hold us up? We want to know that, don't we? When we fail, will it fail? When we fall, will it fall? When the world around us crumbles, will we stand? Well, Genesis 20 helps us to see how strong that grace is. As Abraham, faith-wise, falls flat on his face, loses sight of the promise, doubts God's goodness, lies, he's slippery, he's flaky, he's self-protecting, he's full of fear, and he's complex in that. There's a complicatedness to Abraham. It's been a thing for him since he was first called. He's had 25 years of struggle with this fear, 25 years of this nagging weakness. Now, don't we draw so much encouragement from that? That when we lose sight of the promises of God in Christ, when, when our, our own tangled and complex personal histories, uh, the histories of, of fearfulness and of struggle, when, when we're just idiots like Abraham, and when we're weak, when our faith is as strong as a blade of grass, and it all comes crashing down, when we lose sight of the promise, remember, God never does. Because we stand in grace. And this grace is as strong as eternity. It's as deep as the glory of God. Failure will never be final with Christ, but God. So we can take a deep breath. But God, we stand in grace. We can stand strong and tall because we stand in grace. We can stand glad and full because we stand in grace. 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 Genesis 20 puts grace grace through its paces. It makes us look at how strong grace is. We we see these things that happen in Gerar, these grace-related things. We see first, God doesn't lose sight of the promise even when we do. 
And secondly, God can use us despite our failings. You see, what we've seen so far, I think, is very comforting if we can hear it. It can be very comforting, but it might just compound the sense of uselessness. Because as you look at Genesis 20, you might think, isn't God going to be a bit disappointed to have chosen Abraham? 25 years on, this is what he's doing. It's a bit like the other day. I was um, trying to do some painting. I really wanted to get the job done. Um, and my, my youngest son, Matty, wanted to help. Um, so I said he could help. And within about five minutes, he had got paint on his clothes, on his arm, on the floor, very little on where it needed to be. I had to stop what I was doing, clean him up, and that was the end of his helping for that day. And we hadn't done too much to help. We can feel a bit like that with God, can't we? It's wonderful, isn't it? So wonderful standing grace. Doesn't depend on me. Once we've messed up again and again and again, and and some messing up, we just don't quite get over it. Our faith can, can feel so flaky. It's so good to remember that God promises to bless us. But there's still that nagging thing. Isn't he still going to be a bit disappointed? Now, surely God wouldn't want to use us, would he? No, like with Abraham, Abraham's messed up. Messed up big time, really. God had to come and sort out the mess. He had to get involved. He had to appear in these dreams to Abimelech. At this point, surely he's going to say, Abraham, step aside. Just stand back, Abraham. Stop getting in the way. Stop messing it up. Problem is, though, using Abraham is part of the promise. God didn't just say to Abraham, I will bless you. He says, you will be a blessing. God hasn't chosen to work around Abraham. He's chosen to work through him. And we see that here, don't we? In the dream, God says to Abimelech in verse 7, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. And as the story unfolds, we see that happening as we get to verse 17. Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves, so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. We learn quite a lot in that that verse, don't we? We learn, first of all, that this didn't just happen overnight. Abraham's deception, uh, Sarah being taken as Abimelech's wife, it happened for long enough for all the women in Abimelech's household to discover they couldn't conceive. Secondly, it seems that the way that God stopped Abimelech from touching Sarah was to inflict a kind of illness upon him. Now, could God have done it another way? Sure, it's God, isn't he? He could do what he likes. Could God have healed Abimelech in his household in a different way? Of course he could. God's God, he can do what he likes. But God chooses to bring blessing through Abraham. It's astonishing, isn't it, really, when when God says to Abimelech, Abraham will pray for you. Yes, the same Abraham who has caused all of this. Yes, the same failing Abraham. Yes, this same stuttering in his faith Abraham. He's the one who will pray for you. Why? You've got to wonder, God, God, why do you want Abraham on your team? Put him on the bench for a bit. Let someone else play. Get him out of the action. He's just going to mess it up. Why does God want to use Abraham? Because the promise is that Abraham will be a blessing. God hasn't chosen to work around Abraham. He's chosen to work through him. Because it's grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. 
So what about that nagging question for us? Not the question that God couldn't use us because God can do what he likes, but that God just wouldn't want to. He wouldn't want to use us, would he? Not after what we've done. Not after how we've struggled. Not after how our faith has shown to be so fickle. God must be so disappointed to have us on his team, mustn't he? Look at the grace of God. Our Lord Jesus promised the church To all of his people, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be. He doesn't say, I'll give you a chance, but if you mess it up, I'll bring someone else in. He doesn't say, when you blow it, you'll have to step back. God doesn't send the gospel to the ends of the earth and build the church by working around us. He does it by working through us. One Peter says, you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Those are job descriptions. And our purpose is to give praise to God. And God doesn't get praise by working around us. He does it by working through us. It is all of grace. Despite our failings, God chooses to use us in his purposes. So we are forced to look hard again at the grace of God. Would God want to use me? Would he want to use you? If we think, yeah, of course he would. Of course he'd want to use me. He's pretty lucky to have me on his team, isn't he? If we think that, we've missed the point. But if we think, golly, what a mess. What can I do? But the promise is that he wants to work through me. It's all of grace. And if I see that, I'm going to gladly put my shoulder to the task and fail, probably, But then I'm just going to get back up again. Like Abraham praying for Abimelech. Because we serve from grace, for grace, to grace. It's all about grace. Uh, John Patton was a missionary to a group of cannibals. Um, And he was attacked frequently. And on one occasion, as he was surrounded by people who were trying to kill him, he, he, he wrote this afterwards. He wrote, in that moment, I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. Immortal until my master's work with me was done. Now, like Abraham, he was a man who feared for his life, rightly so, but he realized he was immortal until his master had done with him and through him what he had promised. It's the same for us, isn't it? There's nothing we need to fear because there's nothing that can harm us until our work on earth is done. And when our work on earth is done, it is glory all the way home, isn't it? At the beginning, I mentioned the pastor who said, I was feeling nothing but condemnation, accusation, uselessness, failure. Everywhere I looked, all I could see in myself was just failure. And he said at that point, somebody asked him this question. They said, do you think Jesus regrets getting involved with you? Do you think Jesus regrets getting involved with you? We could take Abraham aside in Genesis 20 and ask him the same question, couldn't we? Abraham, does... Does God regret getting involved with you? But almost before the question's out of our mouth, the passage answers already, doesn't it? No, God wants to use Abraham. He doesn't need to, but he's chosen to. Do you think Jesus regrets getting involved with you? As if he didn't know what he was getting. As if his grace is going to fail if we do. Not at all. Jesus is God Almighty. He will never fail us. 
So even when we fail him, he's there to pick us up again and to set us back to the work he's given us because he has not chosen to work around you. He's chosen to work. He will hold us fast. In a moment, we're going to sing that. But before we do, let's just take a moment of quiet and then we'll pray.